Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that right here. So buckle up. We're, we're about to get messy. So one of the things we have to realize is that the pandemic merely amplified existing complications within a relational organization, and the church is a relational organization. So humans, we're messy. We're messy creatures. Um, sociologists call these things um, relational gaps. So there's things that exist that create gaps between us, and these gaps create uh, are created by different communication styles personality types, conflict management style, belief systems, I don't mean like creedal belief systems, but the way that we view the world. So another term for that is cognition. Um, our biases, nobody in here has any of those. My favorite bias is that I don't have a bias bias. Um, theological and political convictions, the church's capacity for inclusiveness versus tribalism, uh, generational differences, and on and on. And these gaps exist because um, you know, people, uh, the way that you can compare it is maybe uh, to a door. And we can sometimes allow these gaps to close the door off to each other, or we can allow these gaps to open the door and, and lead to thriving, which we're going to get to eventually. But we still got to talk about the messiness of why our churches don't flourish in, in relationships. So within the church, we have this capacity of, of having all these relational dynamics and gaps. And so that's when we go there. and. It, so that all of us feel like we're normal, get a perspective of some of the relational gaps that you all have experienced in your church life. Um, so Brooke, we'll, we'll start with you. What, what are some of these, you know, uh, these relational gaps, these ways that people open or close doors off to each other, whether it be communication or conflict style or personality types and things of that nature? <laughs> Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. All right, folks, we're going to get started, and uh, we're going to begin with uh, some pretty contentious uh, questions, so we're going to play a word association game, okay? I'm going to throw out a few random terms. I want you to write down what comes to mind when you hear this term, okay? And there's no perfect answer, except the wrong answer. All right, you ready? It'll be five words. Washington, D.C. Sky blue. I was waiting for some Carolina fans to be like, Carolina. And then I was going to respond back, N-I-T. Sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I told you. I don't think we could be friends anymore. Oh, that's okay. 
It's all right. I, this next word will really polarize the group. Are you ready? Moist. Yeah. Okay. String theory. It's just cheese. All right, last word. Cable news. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say at least a few of the words associated with Washington, D.C. Uh, you didn't say out loud because we are recording this for a podcast episode, and we don't have the ability to blank out some expletives uh, from, from what you're doing. But what's fascinating is the, the, the great father of analytical uh, psychology, Carl Jung, believed that word association has a lot to do with our worldview. In fact, uh, he believed so much that they developed this 100-question test that um, – as an asset, you begin to dig in and understand the unconscious of an individual, how it affects our thoughts, our emotions, and, and our actions. Ultimately, it's the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, the way that we view others. So I'm going to give you one more word to say. Church. The most common feedback I hear is the words congregation, pews, hymns, worship, tithing, God's house, Stained glass windows, faith, the Lord's table, tradition, missions, and discipleship. Again, Jung said that our word association has, is directly connected to our unconscious beliefs and feelings and experience. So therefore, we have to ask ourselves, why are these the words we associate with the church? And why is not our first impulse when we think of the church as fellowship, community, family, relationships. Anybody remember this, uh, this thing from when you were a kid? You know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, there are all the people. I remember the Sunday school teacher wiggling the fingers around. The Bible has two words for church. The most common we, we translate is ecclesia. Uh, it's a word meaning more like an establishment, place of worship. But there's another word uh, from, from the scriptures is koinonia, and it's best expressed through Acts 2.42 said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread of prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. <clears throat> Or koinonia, this mutual sense of sharing and respect. Why is it, if we stop and think about it, many of us, maybe we don't associate this with our churches. Um, why is it that we don't think of the church as a relational organization in which we're interconnected together? And could it be possibly that one of the reasons that we are so contentious in our churches right now is we're polarized on theological and political issues, yes, and also social issues, um, is that we don't actually foster healthy relationships together, um, which is the focus of our conversation today. So let me introduce our, our panelists. Uh, we have uh, Sarah Blackwell, who comes from Providence Baptist Church. She's a congregational leader there. Dane Jackson, who's the soon-to-be Dr. Dane Jackson, uh, Minister of Students and Families at Providence Baptist Church. Becky Bryant, who's a congregational leader here at Ardmore Baptist Church. Daniil Fowler, who is the Minister of Invitation and Hospitality. My favorite ministerial title in all of CBF life. Um, Stephanie Parker, who is Reverend Stephanie Parker, all these reverends here, sorry, uh, is pastor of children and families at First Baptist Clayton. 
and Brooke Nugent, who is a congregational leader at First Baptist Church of Clayton. Thank you all for joining our conversation today. So uh, let's, let's get a snapshot here because context matters. If we can just kind of briefly give us a snapshot of the type of church that you have to help us understand. Now, sitting in Ardmore, it's like, oh, we know what Ardmore is. But, uh, you know, Daniel, we'll start with you. Give us a snapshot of kind of the context of, of Ardmore. Uh, Ardmore has been here since 1927. We have about 300 people to 400 on a Sunday morning during worship. That's the primary way that people enter into this congregation if they're new to us. Uh, We have a staff of eight eight ministers, uh, tons of great volunteers and lay leaders, and uh, you know, we, uh, like all of us, I'm sure look a little different post-pandemic. So those numbers look a little different than maybe prior to that, but that's kind of who we are on a weekly basis. Uh, I think most people would describe us as a traditional congregation, and that's because of our music. So, uh, you know, that is kind of who we are if you just stepped in on a Sunday morning to meet with us. Stephanie, First Baptist Clayton. So we are uh, 212 years old um, as an institution. It is right in the heart of downtown Clayton, um, which is kind of a commuter town to Raleigh in the Triangle area. We have, probably on a Sunday morning, we're down to around um, 200-ish participating um, in our congregation. That's post-COVID. We took a hit with that. I think people would certainly describe us as a traditional church. Um, We are duly aligned um, and have a lot of, um, Clayton being a smaller-ish town, we have a lot of families and legacy families who've grown up in this church and who come back home. So we have that dynamic in the relationship business as well. Thing, give us a snapshot of Providence. So uh, Providence Baptist, uh, we have, uh, were I think founded in 1954. Um, we're situated in the Cotswold neighborhood of Charlotte, which if you don't know anything about Charlotte, it, it's in the sort of southern, south, uh, west, or eastern wedge of Charlotte, which is a very affluent uh, community. Um, we have one worship service on Sunday mornings where we're seeing probably about 300 people I would say, come to worship. Um, we are a, a moderate congregation, so the folks that attend are, are of lots of different backgrounds, politically, socially, theologically. Um, but we would probably best describe ourselves as like a missions-minded and missions-focused con- congregation. So. so, you know, all of us here, as we think about uh, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on our congregational life, and we've heard a little bit of this in your introduction here, um, it's not going to be deeply understood and realized for, for I think, a long period of time. Um, one thing that, that did not change was the way that we related to each other um, over this. One thing that did change is how we related to each other this three-year period, especially when it comes to this idea of physical proximity. So um, I wonder if you can, y'all give us an insight into how the pandemic affected the relationships within your church, specifically relationships in the church. Um, Becky, we'll start with you. Um. Well, it was difficult for everyone. Um, Ardmore was no different. Uh, We obviously were not able to meet together. Uh, We were able to meet online, and it kind of pushed us to be a little more creative with how we were doing things. Um, We did not stream services before that, but we very quickly had to do that. 
um, and we're able to get our equipment up and running, so that was good. Uh, we were able to meet online with our Sunday school classes. We were creative in online opportunities like prayer times and different conversations with um, other groups. Um, even Sunday school classes we would, or other groups, we would meet outside when we were allowed to do that or able to do that when the weather permitted. So it did push us to be more creative, and that has continued as we've still been adjusting. Sarah, I wonder from your perspective how relationships were affected by the pandemic. I think the thing that made the pandemic so interesting is the church is really good at reaching out to people who are in need at different times. And usually there's always a group that can go out and say, you know, you're having a hard time, you're in the hospital, you know, let's get some food together for you. And the thing that was so unique about the pandemic is it happened to everybody at the same time, which meant that people are sitting around looking like, who's coming for me? Like, at the exact same time that our ministers were probably in the greatest need that they had ever been in, we were also not able to help them. And so I think that one of the things that I've kind of heard from people, and especially those who have not kind of dipped their toes all the way back in, is, well, where was the church for me during the pandemic? And the question was, well, who, who do you think was going to come for you, right? Like, there was nobody left who was not impacted and affected. And so I think that sense of, you know, you know, we did try to be creative and do all the things, like I think Ardmore and, and many of your churches probably did too, but that continual, like, reaching back out to people and saying, you know, hey, we are here, like, I know maybe we did not meet all the expectations that you would have had during this time, but, you know, we want to join back together in that fellowship again. If I could follow up on that, because I read in a, there was a Springtide research report that came out just last year that said in 2021, so the first sort of full year of the pandemic, it said, and this, this made me sick to my stomach as a youth minister, it said that uh, only one in 10 10% of young people reported that a faith leader reached out to them in the first year of the pandemic. Like, and that, that stopped me in my tracks, you know? Um, but I understand being on the other side of it when like you're sitting, you know, on a Zoom meeting with your staff and you're just like throwing, you know, like ministerial pasta against the wall and trying to like <laughs> see what sticks, you know, but also trying to remember that your young people are out there or your church members are out there and trying to like follow up to care for them, you know, so. Um, it's, yeah, there's a whole lot going on in that first year. <laughs> At times I felt more like Kevin from the office bringing in the chili and spilling it all over, all over the place. Uh, yeah. Brooke, I wonder, is, think about how relationships were affected from your experience. Um, yeah, so when we started this year, or I guess last year, being back in person, that's when you could see the effects of it, right? I think we started with four kids. Um, and we tried to do the Zoom, and it, but I, I have the three, four, and five-year-olds. Like, Zooming is like, like this, right? Zoom. Yeah, it's like a Zoom. So like, it really didn't work out. And so we, we had to kind of make that decision to say, look, we can't, we miss you if, you're, if, if you can't come, but for the betterment of, of what we do, um, because we do try to, on Wednesday nights, um, you know, Stephanie leads a, a great youth uh, children's program but we do try to make it as fun but but we had to so this is coming back from the pandemic we had to treat this like you're coming like this is exciting like you have to because it was 
you're not, we're coming back in person, we're not on screen, we're not, this is not a game. So, so we had to just even up the ante of what's gonna make them be excited. So, you know, if it's, and, and I always joke, cause my mom who is now helping, she comes in and volunteers and she's like, oh, those kids, and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's chaos. But they love it because they were so, you know, we were so isolated that they really they need that they need the they need the connectedness. So I would say it's a tangent from what your original question is, but I think the bringing it bringing the chaos back, the fun, right? The the wow, it's nice to be back into a place. I think we were up to 15 in the three, four, and five year olds now. So it went from four to 15, um, but because of that, right? So all pressure off, if you recall that Acts 2 passage I read earlier, it only took them to chapter 5 till things started going crazy. Uh, that fun Ananias and Sapphira passage in which two of them dropped dead on the spot. Some fun <laughs> stuff, you know, that we sometimes want to read about. But what it tells us about the early church and what it tells us about the church is relationships are messy. And human, we're humans after all, and relationships within the church are messy because by design, the church is a gathering of people of all different walks of life and perspectives and experience forming a community around a belief in Jesus. Um, and while we want to build tangible examples, and we're going to get to that, of how healthy relationships within the church leads to flourishing, we also need to be real about how relationships are complicated in the church. So I wonder um, if you all might be willing to share, um, and I know some of the pastors are in the room and stuff like that. This is a safe space, you know. Um, share about your experience and some of the messiness of relationships uh, within the church. Um, Stephanie, we'll start with you. Well, how have I not? Um, it is, it's beautiful and challenging. Um, I grew up in the church where I serve as well, so you can only imagine the complicating and beautiful dynamic that that can be too. Um, you know, people who changed my diaper are now having to like take spiritual direction uh, leads from me. Um, but I, I, it's beautiful because I have known these people and I care so deeply for um, this congregation and the children and grandchildren of some of these people as well. Um, so really though, I think in the pandemic kind of forced vulnerability in some respects, right? As, as, a, as a pastor, I was in the trenches too of trying to figure out, I have children, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and trying to figure out how we're going to do this, and, you know, my husband's at home, and I have family members and children and other people who are really struggling, and so just um, being vulnerable in those relationships, because they are so messy, um, and the pandemic, kind of like you were saying, you know, we didn't have a, a playbook, and everybody's kind of like, well, who's going to reach out to who, and and just opening that door to um, be ministered to and to minister to others, and I think um, that was something we really focused on with children um, and, and helping those kids come in and reconnect and having grace. They, some of these children were, um, you know, born in the pandemic and they've not had to be, you know, integrated into these structures. And so um, Brooke and her team do a beautiful job with that with our youngest ones. Um, but just teaching at all ages that to, to, to come with your messiness and, um, and to be vulnerable with one another, I think, because that's where trust starts and you really, you can't have relationships without trust. And I've seen that too, the brokenness um, of trust, just being a stumbling block to making progress with relationships. So um, I think that authenticity and vulnerability is the breeding ground for trust and how you come alongside each other. And it takes time 
it, especially if that trust has been broken or if there's something that has come into that. Um, but as messy as it is, I think we have, we all have those moments that keep us in it, that remind us this investment is worth it. When we make those connections with someone um, and out of that, um, those relationships can continue to grow and continue to build bridges um, in spite of the messiness. Dane, have you experienced the messiness of relationships with the church? Well, you know, the, I see this as sort of like two different levels. As a, as a staff member, you've got obviously your staff dynamics, you know, which over the pandemic, as you kind of hinted at, you know, one of the things that I struggled with was getting like into the, like the comparison game, you know, of, you know, like, you know, I, I heard it best of saying like I was comparing my, you know, my insides with everyone else's outsides, you know, trying to say, well, look at like, look what I'm doing and look at these things and, you know, look at our, look at our, you know, bum of a senior pastor. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're breaking news here. <laughs> I love you, Lee. Um, but getting into this, uh, this like, you know, it, it's a lot, it, for me, like, you think about Zoom and technology and for a youth minister, that's pretty like low hanging fruit when it comes to like relating to people. But you know, for other folks on the staff, uh, there might be struggles to come up with what like a successful COVID program looks like, you know, if there is one. Um, so there's like staff dynamics that you kind of have to just know, like we're all trying, we're all on the same team. We're all trying to, you know, figure this out together and to say any victory should be celebrated as a team victory, you know? Um, we're, we're all just trying to get through this and to, to you know, have this adaptive leadership, you know, um, sort of knowing as we went along, we're not going to go back to the way we were, you know, we're in a new reality and, and we need to figure out what that looks like. So, and then on like just ministering to young people, um, I think it goes back to sort of family, like where they, where they were in the pandemic. I mean, there were some families that were ready to be back immediately. You know, they wanted to be back engaged. And there were some families that I didn't see for years and years, you know, and, and it was hard and a challenge to say, well, I can, I can minister to these folks in person, but I have to minister to these folks via text and phone call and Zoom. And for these people, like, I, I just have to pray that they're doing okay because I haven't seen them or heard from them in, in years, you know? Um, and that's messy. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so as has already been mentioned, you know, there is no precedence for uh, how to navigate a pandemic, and there was no um, way to plan for it. Uh, we just woke up one day, and our lives were forever changed, and I think what rose to the surface is how much place and presence matter to us in church. And all of a sudden, those two things were kind of taken from us because we couldn't show up in our normal places and we couldn't be present in the ways that we had with one another. And into that was built a lot of pain. And uh, so I think what I've learned is, you know, spiritual work is personal work because you are walking with people and you uh, show up with them in the best and the worst of times and everything in between. And in the midst of that, what you also have to understand to stay in it is that the response is not personal. So much of what we have all inherited from a very difficult couple of years is that things are not 
well with people. Mm -hmm. uh, there is so much still rising to the surface as a result of where we have been. And there is no one for whom nothing is not hard. So I think that we all just have learned a very valuable lesson on you know, how to value what we possibly took for granted. I know I did which was that that place I come to each week, I couldn't go to. And the people I saw and the way that I showed up for them um, was not possible for a while. So we're healing, and that's what we're doing now. We're healing, and God can certainly work in that, but it will take time. And I think for those who work with children and youth especially, for those of us who have children and youth and love them, who is all of us, it will be years before we see really what has occurred in their lives and what has become ultra hard for them. And so I think, you know, we value presence, we, we value place, and now we're giving back to God what is sacred in that and saying, help us to navigate this. Help us to know how to show up in people uh, when they are still seeing all the effects of basically recovery, as the church does mm -hmm. as a whole. Well, the, the, the pandemic also became very political, right? So then coming back to the church became political, or, or not coming back became mm -hmm. political. You know, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that right here. So buckle up. We're, we're about to get messy. So one of the things we have to realize is that the pandemic merely amplified existing complications within a relational organization, and the church is a relational organization. So humans, we're messy. We're messy creatures. Um, sociologists call these things um, relational gaps. So there's things that exist that create gaps between us, and these gaps create uh, are created by different communication styles personality types, conflict management style, belief systems, I don't mean like creedal belief systems, but the way that we view the world. So another term for that is cognition. Um, our biases, nobody in here has any of those. My favorite bias is that I don't have a bias bias. Um, theological and political convictions, the church's capacity for inclusiveness versus tribalism, um, generational differences, and on and on. And these gaps exist because um, you know, people, uh, the way that you can compare it is maybe uh, to a door. And we can sometimes allow these gaps to close the door off to each other, or we can allow these gaps to open the door and, and lead to thriving, which we're going to get to eventually. But we still got to talk about the messiness of why our churches don't flourish in, in relationships. So within the church, we have this capacity of, of having all these relational dynamics and gaps. And so that's want to go there and so that all of us feel like we're normal, get a perspective of some of the relational gaps that you all have experienced in your church life. Um, so Brooke, we'll, we'll start with you. What, what are some of these, you know, uh, these relational gaps, these ways that people open or close doors off to each other, whether it be communication or conflict style or personality types and things like that? So I grew up in the church as well. Um, my grandparents were married in the church um, and I, I went away from the church. I came back um, to our church. I moved away, then came back, and um, we were talking about this on the way on the ride here. Is and I didn't know that someone else had coined this. I thought I was just that brilliant. But anyway, um, I, I, I said, you know, I was I was a saint until I became a sinner, and 
And when I came back into the church, I had been divorced. I had, um, you know, there was a lot of gossip. And and so I was even nervous to, to enter back into this place that was like a safe place that I grew up. I mean, even to this day, my, my son, I am remarried, and my, my son is, is in the daycare there. And I, when I go in there, just the smell of the church puts, a, it, it like makes me feel at peace. And, um, but, but it no longer was, right? I was judged. Um, and, and we run into that with, especially growing up, I was, I was, you know, we were in a singing group and I was in youth and we were always, I was always um, definitely pleasing my grandparents and, and my parents and doing all the, all the things. Not that I, I actually enjoyed doing it, but looking back, I see where it was kind of a, um, a task list, right? And then all of a sudden I, you know, I got divorced and I, I life didn't, it was, my, my path was a little more rocky than it was when I was younger. And so um, going back into the church was hard. And, and to this day, it's still, I, I love the kids, and that's why I invest in the kids because it's that foundation that like it, it is a sta- it's it's still a safe place for me at 38 as it was when I was five, right? But it didn't feel that way when I came back because I was I was a sinner now, right? I had I had kind of fallen off the the, the this holy ride that I was on, and and we struggle with that still. We going back in there's there's clicks. Um, I'm just not a clicky person but it there and you try to break in and you can't and so it's kind of that how do you break how do you how do you come back into this establishment that feels like a feels like a place that that should feel like home but it still feels like every now and then I I walk into a conversation where I feel like a stranger Um, but I feel really comfortable with the kids because kids are very welcoming and they don't care that I've been divorced and they don't care any mistake I've made right so we can all be like lovers of Jesus right here um, in this room and so that's did I have I gone off of it what was the original question no, I mean, <laughs> great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go no, but we but, established yeah. it. it's a perfect example of, of belief systems and how often right. what you're what you're perceiving but probably not what you're perceiving but you're sensing from others um, as it's pheromones are coming off if you will of, <laughs> right of their feeling towards you and their beliefs about the idea of divorce and things you've, you've done and, yeah i mean it's the same reason why you know when jesus went home and like preached for the first time uh, we all love quoting that famous luke 4 passage amazing mission statement go a few verses down they try to throw them off a cliff <laughs> uh, so yeah. you know we we have these things that, that exist within us so uh, sarah i wonder if you would talk about some of the relational dynamics and gaps and challenges and I'm, I'm going to hold y'all's feet to the fire. Tell me some nasty stuff. Like, what's been some people stuff that you've had to deal with in church? Yeah, I think one of the hardest things during the pandemic is the only way that we really had contact with a lot of people was through social media. And so all of a sudden, we're seeing these nice church people that we've had um, <laughs> conversations with, and they're posting things or sharing things that are just soul-wounding, right? My husband is a physician. He was working incredible hours at the main hospital in Charlotte taking care of COVID patients and I mean things that just really like cut to the core of like do you even realize like that's me that's my family like and I think that then paired with the fact that a lot of times we don't really talk about the things that we are afraid are gonna stir things up in church right like we talk a little bit about Jesus and have some conversations but 
we don't talk about some of those controversial issues in church, which is where we really need to be talking about them. And so I think that kind of get the gap, when you say gap for me, it's that gap between, you know, who we're kind of underneath when we see the dark underbelly of things like social media and who we're kind of printing, you know, presenting as our uh, face at church and the disconnect there and um, just that kind of feeling of abandonment and being lost. Like, who, who are these people that I had been worshiping with for 20 years? And I think that was kind of the biggest gap and the reminder that we got to talk about these things before we go to social media with these things. Becky? Um, you know, these messy relationships are uh, difficult to deal with on a, a great day before the pandemic. And so um, I think uh, it's important for staff and our staff did a really good job with this to communicate as effectively as possible, to uh, not try to hide anything, but to be very upfront with things. Um, trying to communicate why we're doing things, when we're doing things, I think is huge. Um, trying to be a little proactive and start groups around book studies like Love Your Enemies, or book studies like Brave Church, I think that those are very important things to try to um, ease some of those tensions. Um, you know, I'd love to say that our board didn't have any issues with it, <laughs> uh, but obviously that's not true. I think every church had some difficulty with that. Uh, we've lost some church members. Uh, we've had Sunday school classes that used to be very strong and vibrant that have um, lost members, and it's, there's been divisions. Um, what we've tried to do, though, is continue to love, continue to heal those relationships in whatever way we can do, um, try to start new things. Uh, I think being brave is very important. It's okay to try new things to heal some of those messy relationships. Um, and I think that we've done, and I know we're going to get into maybe some of those things, so I think we've done some of those things, and I would encourage every church to try to do that as well. Um, I'll share a story uh, from my experience during the pandemic. Um, Christmas Eve service a couple years ago, I had um, one of our more, I'll just say conservative members come up to me and patted her pocket here and she said, Andy, I've got my year-end contribution check that I'm wanting to give tonight during the Christmas Eve service. And um, you know, my, my brother, he's a doctor here in town, pretty successful doctor. He's coming tonight. He wants to give a charitable contribution. So the last thing I want to hear from the pulpit tonight is your flaming liberal democratic agenda. And that was my face right there. That was, your mouth, I was like, I didn't have a good poker face because I wasn't expecting that to happen. But it's, it really is, it kind of is a, it's, it's a really a wonderful example of just how much these dynamics exist within our churches. And pol political issues are easy for us to grab onto, right? Because we have our political allegiances, we see it in our parking lot. Maybe some people are keying people's cars because they see it in the parking lot. But really, there's, there's a layer of complexity that exists within us as human beings. And the mentality we've had as a church for so long is, we'll just pray about it. It's going to solve if we just pray about it. Please don't misunderstand me and leave this room saying the Associate Executive Coordinator of CBF North Carolina <laughs> doesn't believe in prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But God also created us with brains 
and voices and, and, and ears. And, and so we're going to get to the fact that your church needs to talk about these things. You need to identify these things. And if you don't, this clear sign that you, you, you need to handle it, but you're not handling it, is those people that keep leaving your church and going elsewhere. There's not healthy dialogue taking place. There's not conversations. Um, and there's not opportunities to not just talk about these things, but we're going to get to how you can help build some healthy relationships. Um, so the reality is these relational gaps will always exist. Uh, the goal is not to create a homogenous church um, where everyone looks the same and talks the same and believes the same and agrees the same. Um, if that was the case, we wouldn't have these beautiful passages from Galatians and Colossians where, where Paul says that in Christ there is no slave nor free nor Greek nor Jew, male nor female. He's not calling them to not recognize the differences but to understand and embrace the differences that should exist within our churches. So let's explore some of the ways your churches have actually maybe tried to navigate some of the messiness of relationships. So don't, don't get us hopeful yet. Don't tell us everything that's worked and how everything's fine, but tell us about how you, you maybe have tried to navigate some of these, these challenges. Um, Stephanie, we'll start with you. Well, side note, should have probably said this at the beginning, we're also a church in transition, so we do not have a senior pastor. Um, so throw that into the mix coming out of a pandemic, um, and we've, we've had some church conflict around that. So uh, we've had a consultant. Um, that was one strategy. Um, we have a team that's called our transition team that has um, been labeled as the positive, passionate, and spiritual leaders of a church. We do have an interim, an intentional interim that we've had for the last couple of years. And that team led um, a book study, uh, Pathway to Peace. So trying to work through some of the conflict and create a pathway that church members could follow. Um, I, you know, are church members following that? I mean, that, we'll see. <laughs> um, but, I mean, those are just some strategies um, that we've, we've tried to do to navigate some of the messiness. Um, personally, I try to have conversations with people. Uh, I, I don't know how you work through it without talking to them. I'm trying to just seek better understanding of why people are thinking the way they're thinking and where they're coming from. Um, trying, to, trying to, and this is a challenge, work on listening first. Um, to navigate some of those uh, messy things, but those are those are some strategies um, that we've we've tried to work on. I think we have a lot we could improve upon yeah. in that too. Just talking. I mean, it's amazing how you know we, we all joke as Baptists, but like we all talk about that second business meeting in the parking lot in the Sunday school classes, and like we we don't ever like go to that and address that. We just we think if we don't talk about it or address it, somehow it's going to fix itself. So. If I may, one more thing. To that point, um, you know, I think there's some of the, it, one of the things that I would like to see more is the talking with, grounded in reality. <laughs> okay, there's that notion of we want to talk ourselves into being okay. And I see that a lot. And I think churches are just really susceptible to it. We do want to go back to the way things are, even though we know that's not going to happen. Um, and so we can easily say, Yes, you know, oh, I think things are good. I think they're getting better, and especially with ours because we, you know, we've been through a little bit of a rocky period, um, and that's great, but then something else happens, and it, you know, bubbles up again. So I think the talking is important coming from a place of genuinely trying to seek understanding and building unity in those relationships. Um, 
you know, we can do a lot of talking that's unproductive too. Um, so I think that productive conversation is hard and it's a lot messier, but it is so much more important. And again, it goes back to building that trust um, and to back to Brooke's point, coming back in a church, you know, children feel safe and safety and security is like innate. We need to feel safe and secure where we come. And in order for these kind of strategies to work, I mean, you can, there's a quote, I don't know who said it, y'all probably know. Um, if culture eats strategy for breakfast, you can throw all these strategies, but if we don't get down to the culture and how we approach these things, you're just gonna just pass through them. Um, and so it, it is harder work, but important. But those conversations grounded in genuine desire to see one another um, and see each other's heart and where you're coming from is important. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You've elevated a really important point, which is creating within, if you're going to try to navigate these things, it's not like um, Edwin Freeman, if you've never read any Edwin Freeman, you should read Edwin Freeman, but he talks about that sometimes we're just lighting a match in a room full of flame, or full of fumes, and, and it's just at night if we don't think about how we're approaching it. And something you said, remind me, we talk about children, when children feel safe, they feel like they can play, they can be themselves. That, psych that psychology doesn't change when we're adults. And sometimes we think that if we can just get everybody in a room and we're just going to talk about it, we're going to talk through this. No, that, that ain't going to work, right? So how do you create a safe space for people? How do you do this thoughtfully and intentionally? How do you create a sense of belonging so that people feel like they can be themselves? Um, and there's a lot of like practices we can get to of doing that. But you raise a really important point, which is, we are still children at heart, and we still need to create that safety for people to talk about difficult things. I think two questions that you know we've been balancing is the, uh, is this the I want versus the I need. Like, what do people want versus what do people need, and how do you how do you give them a little bit of what they want, and then follow that up with something that you know you you know the church knows that our people need. Um, because I mean the. The reality is, like, and I'm glad you used the word culture, because like our, the church, we are tasked with sharing a never-changing gospel with a never-changing culture, you know? And, and so how we do that does involve a little bit of giving people both what they want and, and what they need. Um, and you, you brought up, you know, questions of everybody's bringing their own identity and, and, and belonging into these, you know, into these contexts. And so how do we meet those needs and how do we help them navigate that and show them where that fits into the larger, the larger church body. So, Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, what has been hard is that when you experience trauma, it takes what already exists and magnifies it. So I don't think anything that we're experiencing 
uh, post-pandemic wasn't already there. But I think we were really good at knowing how to navigate it because we had a certain sure path that seemed to be working. Um, it was familiar. Um, because church life, you know, it gets familiar to you. It's a default, really, for a lot of us and how we navigate our weeks and our days. And so I think that what we found, and Becky's already alluded to this, was it was crucial to try to make space. So uh, instead of not having conversation, although it was hard, we tried to make space through book studies, through gathering in ways that we could. And most importantly, I think it was more valuable than ever to become active listeners. And to instead of trying to have all the answers, because that's never gonna be possible, to really instead be very active listeners and ask really good questions. Some of it is also just paying attention. How are people not showing up or how are they showing up differently? Who is missing? Why are they missing? And I think one of the ways we learned how to ask good questions is we um, did a survey. Now I know survey puts the fear of God in everyone because they think that ultimately is going to mean you're going to turn their world upside down and you're going to take everything that is familiar or you're going to start a building campaign or you're going to do something that is going to rock or wreck their world and what was familiar to them. But we were very upfront about the fact that our ear is to the ground. We want to hear from you and when you speak, we are listening. And so we asked questions about how they were showing up in this space. Were they showing up? What was preventing that? What were their needs? Um, how could we meet them in that? And, uh, you know, just try to really reassess what we were working with as we all came back together. And so that was one of the things that proved for us to be most effective as much as people were willing to share. There were no strings attached. It was anonymous, but we really needed to know who is here, who is not, and how can we all, you know, come back together and uh, be unified in certain ways, even if it's at the expense of being really open to change. So social psychology, has, there's endless research that will show that if you sit people down and they know you're trying to convince them to change their perspective on something, they will only entrench themselves further. So we're not here. You didn't see a sign on the door that said intentional interim training. That is not what we're doing. Talking is one facet of creating healthy relationships in the church. But we want to kind of deep dive into some other creative ways um, for your churches to think about building healthy relationships. So for all, all churches, are, their size and their scope play a critical role in opportunities for, for cultivating healthy relationships. So we're going to dig into um, how you've experienced healthy relationships in the church what mechanisms, you know, cultivated those healthy relationships? When I say mechanisms, I mean program, culture, you know, you modeling the way as a leader that helped cultivate healthier connections with, within your church. Um, Becky, we'll talk about you, start with you and your experience. Um, tying into what Neil said, uh, the survey was very helpful at Ardmore in um, just figuring out when, when would people be able to 
attend meetings? What were they interested in? What were the types of meetings and groups and community that they really wanted to become a part of? And so we had to shift timing some. Um, and we thought, this isn't gonna work, but we'll give it a shot. It's working. Uh, it's not working perfectly, no program does, but it has been a really great thing. So one of the things that we shifted uh, was we uh, are no longer doing like a Wednesday evening Bible study. We shifted it to Wednesday morning. And that was due to the older folks in the congregation saying they didn't want to drive after dark. Um, it's been wonderful. Our attendance has bloomed. And um, it's great to have uh, that open for anyone, not just the older folks, but it's an intergenerational thing. We have younger folks that are able to come on Wednesday mornings as well. Uh, we shifted our Wednesday evening children activities and youth activities to Sunday afternoons. And we thought, oh, they're not gonna like that. Our attendance again has, has blossomed. I mean, it's been really, really nice. And so we had to be willing, like Daniel said, to listen to some of the survey results, listen to the conversations we were having with people and actually make those changes that have that are embedded in our Baptist life. Um, one of the things I'm enjoying the most is um, the affinity groups that we started. Um, they're fun. Uh, you know, you get people interested um, in things that they have in common. For example, I helped lead a walking group and we meet on Thursday afternoons at 3.30 go to different places and we walk together and it's intergenerational these are um, people that I don't get to see on a regular basis in worship or Sunday school but I get to walk and talk with them and um, build a more secure relationship through those activities um, so that's a lot of fun I get to attend other affinity groups like yoga we have a yoga class that you know it's just great um, there's four game groups I mean just finding those activities that people are interested gives that um, entrance way into finding uh, strong relationships and building those relationships as well. So. Very concrete example, sorry. Yeah, I can echo that. Our, our family joined Ardmore here. There's my pastor right there. Um, and uh, I play pickleball on Sunday afternoons. And we don't go through the you know, walk motions of like having to do a Bible study and praying. People are calling on the name of Jesus when somebody's slamming a pickleball down like <laughs> their face. But there's there's like last last Sunday there was like 15 people from you know younger than me, then way older than me, um, that were all just getting together and enjoying time together and and just investing time. Um, so pretty pretty amazing. Um, Sarah, I wonder if you'll share from from your perspective. Sure. One of the things that we realized uh, with Sunday school faith formation classes, that we had a lot of teachers that were putting in a lot of time to classes that were very small, and we just kind of looked around our church and said, Who, who's here that could benefit from something different on Sunday mornings? And so we took a couple of different classes at ages and stages and put them all together and revamped the format to be, we call it the come and see class, and the idea is that this is a landing spot for anybody who doesn't have a place on a Sunday morning. So if they're the guest to our church, they can immediately go to that class and know that they will be welcomed. We do introductions every single Sunday. We sit kind of in a uh, circle where we're kind of all at the same level. There's not, you know, this is the teacher and these are the, the people who are listening. 
we're all at the tables together. We introduce each other ourselves every week. We always start with some topic just about our lives, like what's going on with us. You know, what do you love about spring? Or, you know, what was your high point of this week? And going around and hearing from you know, young adults up to senior adults, what is going on in people's lives and starting that every week. And, and we started with a curriculum that was very spiritual practice focused because we thought that that was kind of an important piece coming out of the pandemic and we could talk about some different spiritual practices. And then during that time, that sort of built the trust that when we got to our next book, which was about the Gospel of Luke and had some topics that were a little bit more charged in it, I would say, we had sort of established a foundation of, you know, we're gonna listen to each other and everyone is going to take this class covenant that we are gonna be a place where people can talk about things that are difficult. And it's, we've had really good feedback as far as just some of the senior adults saying, well, I kind of understand like the young people a little bit better now and vice versa. And I think that that intergenerational piece is something that the church really has a monopoly on and we don't realize it and we don't utilize it enough. Mm. That the only place that my children who are in high school and middle school really have deep relationships with people who are not in sixth and ninth grade are at their church. And it's so necessary and it's so needed and we just have to find ways to capitalize on that more. And I'll mention just one other thing as far as relationships goes and that has to do with our presence on social media. And I'm looking here at Katie Jackson who manages ours so wonderfully is using that as a tool for relationship like people see and even though they might be not coming in the doors of your church they may still claim your church to be their church and they see those people oh look how so-and-so is growing or wow that's a really cool thing that they're doing there and telling the story and not just using it as here are the announcements for the week on our thing and using that as a relational piece because I know that there are folks that that is their relationship with your church right now. And you can really develop that through thoughtful use of um, social media. Um, <laughs> ways that you've experienced kind of cultivating healthy relationships within the church. Like what mechanisms that, that, that take place under? Well, so I, like I said before, I teach the kids and I've found that loving on children and it makes their parents love you. Um, so, <laughs> I have been able to build relationships with some of the some of the women that um, I would say the, the women are the ones who bring their children into my classroom on Wednesday nights. So um, I think just loving on their kids and their kids' enthusiasm for Wednesday nights and and church has now bled into their you know they're sitting in the you know, in the hallways when I come out and they're talking or they're coming into the classroom before and to the point where I'm like, all right, it's time for mission friends, you know, but everyone's kind of fellowshipping together. Um, so I think, I think creating a, an environment where it is, like you said, I mean, I, I like to ensue chaos with these kids. Um, it's fun, but you know, so they're just running around and they're, they're, they're doing, we, we do, <laughs> a lot of STEM activities every Wednesday. Um, I always incorporate uh, some type of experiment to go along with the Bible study. So they are getting play in with, um, with their Bible study, but it is, it is also structured, right? So they have music, then they, we do a Bible study, and then we, then we do a craft or a science experiment. 
and then we pray. Um, sometimes we have to pray multiple times during the experiment because just to center ourselves. Um, but, but I say that to say it's brought the parents together. I mean, I think parents that that don't normally talk will come into the room and they're just fellowshipping, waiting for their kids, waiting for. Um, I, I think about Abby's mom, who I had no relationship with, and she kind of our church because it has been there for so long. Um, and there are a lot of legacy members. If you're new, it's hard to really get ingrained um, into the church. And so for those those people, you know, that that connection um, has really opened up, I think, relationships that I wouldn't have been able to really foster without bridging that gap with their children. So one of my favorite things about ministry is the aha moments that church members have where they're like, they see the depth behind the thing where it's like, no, this wasn't just this program or this event. Like there's layers here, which is a question I'm gonna get to our ministers here in just a second. One of the things we were recognizing when I was at University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for those four years is we were actually growing, like young people were actually coming and it was amazing, but we knew that with young people coming, we were gonna run into generational gaps. And that meant a number of things and recognizing that was going to take place we created uh, what we called the Barnabas Project, which was uh, intergenerational prayer partnerships. And so we would take uh, a child, we start with a relationship with the child and their parent, and they would be matched with a retiree in the church. And they would meet once a month on, on Barnabas Project Sunday, which was the first Sunday of the month, in the sanctuary, and our minister of children retirees would have a craft for them to sit down and do together. And the idea was maybe once a month they would also exchange some sort of word of encouragement to them. And this came out of um, I was matched with a prayer partner when I was in sixth grade. And to this day, once a month, that couple who's in their 90s will send me a note now on Facebook that tells me they're still praying for me and they're thinking of me today. And we started to see that, that those connections that take place where the older generation who maybe doesn't understand where the younger generation and vice versa is coming from, they have authentic relationships that are connecting them together, and it gives them something practical and tangible to, to hold on to. So as we look at the backside of some of the designs behind the mechanisms that we often create as ministers, I wonder, Stephanie, if you'll share some from your perspective. So example. Yeah, some examples of things that you've done and why what was done behind it, or you, the collective you of the ministry staff. Okay. I don't want you to take credit for everything. No, 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 I don't. <laughs> he leaves sitting here. Yes, I know, I know, it is a team. Um, and wonderful, like I, I have to say that, like volunteers, if you are a volunteer, if you're doing that, I mean, it's, it's so important. Like we couldn't do the work without the volunteers and their um, hearts. So as, as a minister, I, I'm well aware of that and super grateful and try to take the time to tell the volunteers how much I appreciate them. That's a huge relationship piece too. Um, we have a similar program, we call it Grand Friends. And we match up a senior adult with a child, and we started that. Like you said, Sarah, it's so great. And we do have a monopoly on those intergenerational relationships youth with youth, too. And, and that, that can be tricky. But um, trying to have those engagements, and I'll create a, like a lesson to give prompts. Because sometimes it can be intimidating. If you don't have grandchildren around, or your grandchildren are now in college, like, how do I talk to a third grader? Um, so we do we do prompts and things and have a exchange and we had one recently on communication and the importance of communication 
And I loved it because we had folks telling out, we used to have a bell to ring, but it was a dinner bell. That's how we communicated. <laughs> and then we played a game, I don't know if you've ever played Whose Line Is It Anyway, where we had props. And we had like pool noodles, like how would you use this as a communication tool? It was hilarious. Like I wish I, we could do that in here. It was so much fun. But kids were coming up with ideas and it, they're learning from each other and they're having this exchange. But the background is a weakness of ours as a church is communication. So trying to teach and bridge that communication gap. We're not that scary. You know, we can learn how to talk to each other in ways that we all know communication is important. We just have different experiences with it and we come at it in different ways, but it is so necessary to build those relationships. So um, that's one of the things that we try to do. I also, um, with transitions are important, age transitions, all different stages of life. And so working with children, I take our fifth graders to lunch once a month and they think it's the best thing in the world because it's like, oh yeah, we're going to lunch. And I tell the parents every cent will be spent. I'm not here to monitor what they purchase. They get to get practice also of just ordering off a menu for themselves, which they think is amazing. Um, but that's, that's helping them prepare. We have intentional conversations of reflection about their time in the children's ministry as they prepare to transition into youth ministry. And it's also, in my mind, I like to think preparing them to be adults in the church too, to not forget where you came from so that hopefully we can continue build, bridging these generational gaps as they grow. Because there's, you know, kids like, I'm too old for that. I don't want to participate. But it's like, oh, no, no, you came from this. So constantly creating bridges for those um, gaps helps and helps also hopefully beyond the church as we're having conversations about things, as we see the world differently, as we have different experiences so that we can foster that um, listening and, and healthy conversation that builds those relationships. So those are those are a, a few of the ways, um, and also just showing up for people, like being present for their stuff, and um, doing that to show that presence matters. Again, that Brooke does that so beautifully you know, with our youngest youngest churchgoers, as I like to call them, our children. They they learn about God through the presence of people that come and show up and walk them around the church if they're crying or help them with their boogers or whatever they may need. Like that that shows God in skin to them. And it's such a beautiful thing. And so we continue that too as you grow, showing up for people, being present and walking with people in their difficult times. Um, even in a pandemic, we don't have the answer. We're just, we don't know, but we're going to just be here with you and try to figure it out together. So those are some examples. Then take us behind the great Wizard of Oz <laughs> curtain of youth ministry. Well, you know, I love this talk about um, intergenerational being key, um, especially coming out of the pandemic, where for churches that uh, might be larger and youth are seen more, you know, as an orbiting body around, you know, what's going on with adult ministries of the church, um, but also for churches that may not have an established, like, mentorship program, which I will love that. But if your church is looking for a nice entry into that, like what do we do if we want to get there but we're not there yet? One of the things that we did over the pandemic was we had, and I, I, I don't know any other way to describe it other than it was like intergenerational speed dating 
um, you know. And uh, it was it was a time where uh, we, the youth ministry, worked in collaboration with the college ministry, in collaboration with the adult ministry. And we put all of these people in a room, um, and we spent time like coaching up the different groups. You know, I, you know, I had to go to high schoolers and middle schoolers and say. Like, these people really want to get to know you, you know? They do, you know? And we were coaching up some of our older folks to say, these young people really want to get to know you, you know? Like, yeah, they like you, you know? Um, and we mixed them up at tables, and we had um, prompts and, 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 and topics of conversation. And, you know, we, we, we just sat back and watched as, as sixth graders, uh, you know, shared with some of our senior adults about stories of them growing up and, and what life was like, uh, you know, at a certain age or, you know, I mean, it, it went beyond like, what's your favorite food, what's your favorite color, although that's important, but we were, we were trying to create some, uh, just seeing people's humanity sort of behind the, you know, I just know her because, you know, uh, she stands in the back and hands bulletins out every Sunday, but, you know, and, and so that was an incredibly powerful day. Uh, to be able to sit and watch folks interact. And so it's a great entry level event that I think is scalable and any church can put something like that together. Yeah, so uh, to go back to our survey results, uh, what we learned from the survey was that people really, young families and even families with teenagers were being very squeezed as they re-entered. You know, all those uh, commitments we made to coming back to a simpler life, uh, <laughs> that how we were gonna keep it really simple when we came back from pandemic. Well, life would not cooperate, right? There were many demands placed on us and everything just kind of re-emerged. All the demands on families and people in general. Um, and so in, in 21, we really watched how people were showing up or not showing up. We took the survey and what we found was that Wednesday nights really weren't working well for anyone. Um, not ideally, um, as Becky already said, you know, some of our senior adults were like, daytime's better. And then what we heard from families were, we can't fit one more thing in during the week. So from that, we um, tried to really listen to what people want, what people need, you know, look at the whole person, you know, what, what is going to be something that is going to bring them together. And what we know about people is belonging matters. And belonging can break down barriers. So don't ever underestimate providing an avenue for fun, providing a meal, providing an opportunity for an on-ramp where they will meet Jesus. Don't ever think it can't happen through pickleball. Um, out of that was born what we call All Together Ardmore. And so on Sunday evenings from four to six, everyone is welcomed back to the church for a number of different things. We uh, had already tested out a semester system, pre-COVID, which meant that at some points we do music with children and, and youth, and then we alternate with missions or Bible study. So that was already established as something that worked for us. And so we just then moved it from a Wednesday to a Sunday. We made sure we had childcare for people who want to do things beyond, um, you know, what might be happening on campus or in the building. 
and we just really let people drive that. What would you want to lead? What are your interests? Where can you invite people in? And so out of that, we have interest groups, affinity groups. We have some things that don't meet on Sundays. We have a hiking group that meets on Saturday once a month. We have tabletop games that meets another time. But what we're seeing is we're seeing the avenue for this intergenerational type of gathering where people have opportunities to come together um, outside of worship and Sunday Bible study where they were already established. So relationships are being built and more people are getting to know one another. And uh, then once a month, just to kind of culminate and bring it all together, we have a meal. And that's really where we see people coming together, sitting at a table where they can show up and just show up and be together and uh, we give thanks for that and it's provided an opportunity to see people that normally their paths would not cross and so it's not perfect but it's something and it's a place where we can say we we asked we listened and here's how we're responding and what can you bring to this and it will forever be ongoing um, you know something we have to reassess but it felt good to see joy and energy and people together again. I'm going to leave a couple minutes for um, some questions from you all and interacting with the panel, but just kind of two quick thoughts from organizational psychology to kind of cap off our conversation about flourishing relationships. So we've all heard that phrase, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, cognitive and social psychology has found that physical proximity sharpens our ability to love others. And one of the challenges we have coming out of the pandemic is in our isolation, our levels of empathy dropped because we didn't have social accountability. So why you have church members posting things and then responding nastily to each other, or maybe ministers in here, I'm sure you've never experienced this, why you have people coming up and saying stuff to their, your face that maybe they wouldn't have said pre-pandemic is because in our isolation, our levels of empathy went down and we, we're have, we have to build that back up. We have to learn how to be back around people and build relationships and have accountability for our art. That doesn't mean, again, that we have to be homogenous, but that just means we have to recognize that I can disagree with you, but I don't have to bring the vitriol that, that comes with that. So there's something about the power of presence that makes relationships healthier. Um, there's another quote I want to read from Henry Nouwen to kind of lead to the last thought, which is uh, he says, more and more the desire grows in me to simply walk around to greet people in their homes, to sit on their doorsteps, to play ball, to throw water, and to be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time to practice the simple ministry of presence. And I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and to tell your own, and to let them know with words and handshakes and hugs that you don't simply like them, but you love them. A recent study found that families that play together stay together. In other words, families who've learned the art of having fun are more likely to flourish. And I have found in the congregations that uh, I work with both in CBF and when I work for CBF Global, the same is true for churches. Churches that play together stay together. And we've lost sometimes the art of play. We think we always have to do worship or Bible study or missions, and we forget that the conflict comes out of not relating to each other and maybe just playing, playing for the sake of playing. So maybe playing pickleball, 
but Maybe. other things as well. So let's open up here um, to talk about uh, any questions you might have about things that were said from the panelists or things that we've touched on. What questions do you have? Honestly, it really had to be minister-led at first. I'm not going to tell you that it was a flawless process, uh, but you know what you want to see modeled. Sometimes you have to step out and lead, and so there were a lot of things like the yoga. Our children's minister had been on sabbatical, and she had become certified as a yoga instructor. So that was a passion of hers, but also it required a lot of her, but it also was something that we knew, okay, we've got to start here small, and we've got to start with what we have and what we know. And then also there are people who were kind of maybe already leaning into that, um, that, that were doing that, but it just didn't have like a framework or a place. And so we elevated it in our communication. You know, maybe they were having people over to their house to play games. Well, let's bring it here or provide an avenue where there's more framework around communicating about it and building um, interest and enthusiasm. There was also a, a plea to the deacon body as well, <laughs> just to say, is there anything you're interested in that you might be willing to lead? And that's, that's when I volunteered because I walk all the time. Why not walk with friends and make new friends? And um, it's just been really neat. Sometimes we have two, sometimes we have eight. It, it doesn't matter. We, we have a wonderful time in all kinds of weather. So I think, you know, several folks have that natural interest and we're able to kind of jump on board when the ministers requested that. So don't be afraid to ask. David? We do. We do. We have child care on site during that time anyway because there are going to be people who are going to be either serving in what's going on with children's music or ministry or maybe in the youth and they, they had a need for that anyway. So that's why having it at a designated time where we're all in a place at one time with lots of things going on has served us well because it takes all that energy and allows us to say yes so it says we can we're going to do all this here and so that way we're not scattering the child care through the week we're saying here's when we have it but uh, along that note because i know kind of what you're getting at there um experience another church doing something similar to this and then something we did at ubc which was we have to recognize ministers, sometimes this isn't just going to spontaneously happen. Like, we can preach the greatest sermon ever from the pulpit about relational connections, and people are like, well, i got important things to do in my life. So you have to cultivate these experiences. And one of the things we did at UBC was we wanted our young adults to grow relationally, and then we were hoping that leaned into the theological missional aspect. So we created a, a Friday night. We called it uh, Young Adults Night Out. We offered really cheap child care at the church. And the uh, understanding was if you drop your kids off for child care, you're joining this larger group on an outing. And we'd go out to dinner together, go out and do an activity together. We did it once a month. Um, it wasn't just drop your kids off and go do your own thing. It was cultivating this experience. And, and there's another church in CBF North Carolina Life that has placed everybody into a group. And I think it's like the first or second Friday of every month. 
everybody is going to a different house with a different group of people and having a meal together. Um, and everybody brings something to the meal. And then a month later, they have a different group that they're getting together. And so they're creating opportunities for people to do it in a way that maybe they wouldn't on their own. Um, um, so there's just another kind of unique thing to think about. And just to clarify, the child care is really just for under three because the programming is for three and up. So that's where they are also being fed either through music or mission or Bible study. So it's not just dropping off your kid. It's like if you're going to leave your child with us and entrust them, they also are growing and learning. Another question. Maybe have time for maybe one more, one or two more. So if two people raise their hand, we're going to make you arm wrestle to figure it out. My, my question. Yeah. Yeah, I would say for most congregations the pandemic accelerated bad habits that existed before the pandemic. And unfortunately for a lot of our congregations, not a lot, but a few of our congregations in the state, it accelerated um I hate to use this terminology, but a death spiral where their stagnation only was amplified and they're on life support right now. And so it's, you know, it's at this point that you, it's hard to think about, oh, we just need to get together to have a meal, go play pickleball, but really it might actually be the best thing. Because if you get in a room and talk about how you're gonna fix all your problems, you're gonna have more problems, you know? And so sometimes our solution is always to find a long range plan or strategic thing when maybe it's just bringing people together and, and allowing them to, to mourn together and to voice their concerns together, but also do more together. Maybe, maybe one more? Well, we got two and a half minutes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say just quickly, I'd, we try to model that with, like, churches we work with. I hosted a workshop with a church a couple weeks ago, and we created a covenant at the beginning. Say, so we're going to talk about some difficult things, but here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to spiral into negativity and cynicism. Um, if you voice, like, you have a problem with something in the church, the expectation is you're also going to voice a solution to that problem. And so that gives people accountability. That's why I don't like... Um, um, uh, well, social media. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't like anonymous surveys in churches because people can just say whatever they want to say with no accountability for it. Um, and so I, I would encourage you, allow people, and, and you got to create some rules for that. So small groups matter for people who, especially who are more introverted, to share in small spaces. Large groups share back, but also creating rules of engagement for your conversation. And you have to have somebody who can mediate that to say, nope, we're not going there. We said we're not going to do that. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. Can you maybe reframe that less as an attack and more of, you know, this, this, and this? So there are some things that we recommend. Again, don't go willy-nilly into a conflict conversation, I think. We're all going to be good Christians here. Because we wouldn't have two-thirds of the New Testament if we were all just good Christians here. Um, so. 
We'll just give you just kind of a quick example of like why I recommend for folks, um, this is, we'll close out with this kind of thought, um, recommend for churches to actually talk about and think about pers- talking about your communication style and talking about your conflict management style. Because the better we understand each other, the more we understand, oh, you're not coming across as hostile. You're just, you're super nervous about talking and talking in front of people. And some, you know, we lack a wide emotional vocabulary for many of us. We just don't have the words, and so instead of you're flustered, it's you're angry. No, I'm not angry. I'm just I'm a little agitated right now. So if you can do that work with your congregation, that legwork to help understand some of those things, it really will pay dividends as people try to relate to each other um, in these conversations. So uh, kind of three uh, plugs as, as we go. Um, as we navigate these treacherous waters of social and political and theological tension, leave you with this question. Could it be that we've confused the mission of being right over the mission of being the presence of Jesus to each other and to a polarizing world? Um, And the last thing is uh, CBF North Carolina would love to work with you as you navigate these relational challenges within your church as we're cultivating workshops and upcoming initiatives that are going to focus around congregational thriving. So reach out to our office if we can help with any of these things. Um, and the last thing is I'm going to give a word of gratitude to our panelists. Thank you all for coming and participating. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.